have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 14 this morning. Uh, if you've been here for any length of time, this should be a passage that is familiar with you. It's probably a passage that I go to uh, more than any other to remind me of the life that I have in Christ Jesus, but also of the mission that God has given me through his son. We're in the middle of a series where we're casting vision for the days ahead in our lives, not just for 2024, but my prayer is, is that these would become reminders for you of the work that God wants to do on a continual basis of the work. But yes, we do need to be reminded of that everything in my life where growth is concerned is going to be brought about by the choices that I make that I need to grow in my knowledge of God so that I can live the mission that he has for me. In this series, we're really looking each week at two different realities of life that we have and how God wants to have a convergence in our lives of where those things meet and how they bring about the life that God has designed for all of his followers to live. Everything about our lives must be centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that gospel not only should be declared over our lives to remind us that, yes, God has saved us through his son and through his work alone. But God also brings into our lives implications that since the gospel is true for us, these are the things that should be shaping our lives. These are the things that we should be seeking in our lives And today I want to talk about really what I think, based on years past of sermons that we've preached on biblical community, this may be the most difficult passage, or rather sermon, for some of you to apply to your lives. It's not usually controversial theological topics that get me in trouble. What usually gets me in trouble is is when I tend to try to meddle in your relationships. And I try to remind you that your relationships don't exist for you. Your relationships exist for the glory of God alone. And it's our job to live in light of the gospel, sanctifying the way that we view our relationships in light of the gospel. Because I believe that there is power to amplify the gospel in our relationships. But I need you to understand that the opposite is also true. The relationships have the power to ruin our lives if we view them in the wrong way and if we make the wrong choices in them and about them. I believe that one of the greatest areas of repentance that is needed in the lives of so many is in the realm of relationships. The way that we deal with relationships has the potential to build our lives up for the glory of God, but I need you to also understand that they have the power to destroy our relationship with Jesus Christ as well. This is a call that God has made clear through the mission of Jesus for our lives. Most, if not all of you, though, need desperately to revision your understanding of your view of relationships in your life. If the relationships in your life are not bringing you closer to Christ than they are necessarily pushing you away from Christ. There is no neutral in relationships. There is no standing still. They're either edifying you to the glory of God or they are sinfully 
bringing you away from the glory of God in your life. I want to begin reading in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5. Paul really casts vision, not just for his mission, but for the mission of everyone. He starts in verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though We once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Number one this morning, I hope you understand that the gospel transforms your understanding of relationships. The gospel transforms the way that you understand your relationships. And this is not just speaking of one type of relationship in your life. Because for most of you, there are certain relationships that you apply that to. But we must understand that the way that Paul is writing this is not that some of my relationships are impacted. And the way that the scripture writes as a whole is not that other relationships are left unimpacted by the power of God in the gospel. But rather that we don't view anyone the same way any longer. You don't view your spouse the same. You don't view your children the same. You don't view your friends the same. You don't view your enemies the same. You don't view your coworkers the same. You don't view your neighbor the same. You don't view anything the same. If there was ever anything that had evidence that you will not become completely like Jesus Christ until the day that you die, it's the relationships in your life. Because they're a constant source of temptation. They're a constant source of struggle. They're a constant source of frustration. And they are a constant source of edification and exhortation and rebuke. The relationships will make you. And yes, the relationships will break you. And much of it has to do with our understanding of what love is. Love is defined through faith in Jesus. I think that... The whole chapter of 2 Corinthians 5 is a difficult passage, and that's not saying that it is unclear or hard to understand. Rather, I believe that it is difficult because of the implications that it has for the life that we must proactively seek through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to treat verse 14 and the first few words there as really the thesis statement for everything that he is about to say. His thesis statement is the love of Christ controls us. And then he means to lay out exactly what that means through our relationships. And I think it's fascinating that the phrase the love of Christ controls us can be applied to anything in your life. You can look at anything in your life and some way find a way that the phrase the love of Christ controls us impacts that thing. But what does Paul specifically begin to lay out? We no longer live for ourselves. We don't view other people the same way that we first viewed other people. 
He goes to the most intimate aspect in your life because everyone has hangups about the way that they view other people. You either view other people as a great source of pain in your life or you view other people as the very thing that gives you life in this world. And usually if you view other people as the thing that gives you life in this world, you are kind of default moded in the way that you understand yourself to believe that that means you are healthier than people that have hangups where other people are concerned. But what you don't understand is that you are just as much prone to sin in that regard as those who don't want other people in their lives, maybe even more so. Because for the most part, everyone is selfish about other people in some way, shape, or form, even if you think they just give me life. Because usually what you mean by that is everybody needs to be all about me. You are God. The love of Christ controls us is a bold statement. I want to get a foundational level of what I think that means It means that Christians, in light of the gospel, seek to live lives that reflect an undergirding ethic that all of our actions reveal that we are controlled by the love of Jesus Christ. Do you have that undergirding ethic in your life? Can you point to everything you do and say, well, obviously it shows that I'm controlled by the love of Christ. I can't. But that's the goal. That's the vision. Paul is pointing to the gospel and saying that if you have faith in Jesus, then the life that you now live is one that is to be defined by the love that Jesus displayed in his sacrifice for your salvation. That is why he could look at you and say, if you are in Christ, you no longer live for yourself because Christ didn't live for himself. The most vital moment of his life on the cross, it was for you. It was for others. There are many directions that I can take that. But as I said, Paul points specifically to the way, and he uses the term regard. We regard others. Now what that word means, because it's probably not one that you use frequently, is that the way you know, perceive, and understand other people has been radically changed by the gospel. It's been changed completely. It's unrecognizable to what it was before you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Because of my faith in Jesus, I no longer understand life as being about me. I can't be selfish because Jesus was the opposite of selfish on the cross. Because of Jesus, I now must look at my life through how much he gave to me and then, verse 16, live like that towards others and how I know, perceive, and understand other people. The direct implication here is that building relationships with others first, and we have to clear this, First, because of Jesus, 
Building relationships with others is an imperative of the gospel. It is not an option to live isolated from other people because Christ would not live that way. We must sacrifice for the sake of other people, which, by the way, brings with one assumption. There are other people. (laughs) It's pretty hard to live for the sake of others if there's no others in your life. It's been said, look at the one another's of Scripture. There are over 50 places in the New Testament where it says, do this for one another, for one another, for one another. And it says every single one of them has one thing in common, other people. So the most introverted person in here, the person that's like, man, it is so draining to be around other people. The person that sits in a crowded room, it's like, oh, I just wish I was alone with my cats. There's some of you in here. I can joke like that because for me, it's dogs. (laughs) But you need other people in your life because Christ would have other people in his life. Not only that, but you will sacrifice your introversion. You will sacrifice your fears of other people. You will sacrifice how draining other people are. You will sacrifice for the sake of those same people because Christ sacrificed for the sake of you and those people. If life is about loving others like Jesus, I need to build some relationships to make that happen. And here's the key. Those relationships then also must be defined by the love of Christ that controls me. So all of the relationships that I'm going to seek because of the gospel must be shaped by that undergirding ethic of I no longer live for myself, but for the sake of others And I used to view people according to the flesh, but I view them thus, I regard them thus no longer. Therefore, for the extroverts, for those of you that get in a crowded room and you're just like, oh, this is the best day of my life. People. First, you're so weird. I don't get that. But, but for you, Don't mistake your extroversion for obedience to the call of Christ. Relationships are not about you. Relationships are not about you. Most people proactively seek out relationships that make much of themselves. Most people even subconsciously, fill their lives with people that just make them feel better about themselves. And here's what you need to understand. Once you're in Christ, you got to get over that because it's not about you. You no longer live for yourself. So if you only build a community around yourself of others that add value to you, Others that make you feel better, others that fit your desires, others that make you feel like you're the greatest person ever, others are just so life-giving. Then you are living for yourself. 
And because of Christ, you do not have that as an option. Most people base relationships on how much value the other person ascribes to you or how much value you feel that the other person gains you through status, through money, through fame, through envy, through appeal, through vanity, and common interest. question you got to ask is how does that set you apart from an unbelieving world? If you seek out relationships for the very same reason that unbelievers seek out relationships, here's the question. Remember, what was that first thesis that Paul started with? The love of Christ controls us. Then how does the love of Christ control you? If all of your relationships are built under the same undergirding ethic of those whom the love of Christ does not control. People must understand that if you're a Christian, faith dictates that relationships, all of them, actually exist to make much of Christ and not much of you. And some of you will say, but that's all I have time for. I'm not telling you not to have friends. I'm telling you that you're probably underestimating the amount of time that you have to invest in relationships. This is not an option. This must be an intentional pursuit according to the implications of the text. Look at what Jesus says in John 13, starting in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Now, you might ask yourself, so we weren't supposed to love other people until Jesus? Those Old Testament saints, they could just hate everybody and be faithful? The new commandment isn't to love other people. It says often to love other people and gives you ways to love other people throughout the Old Testament. What is Jesus now saying? He qualifies it just as I have loved you. What Jesus is saying is never before have you had me show you how to do it. That's why it's new. He says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another by this All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's be clear. You do not have to be controlled by the love of Christ to be in relationship with other people. You know that unbelievers have relationships with other people all the time or to have what this world will call a version of love for other people. You don't have to be a believer to have that. So what is Jesus saying and what is Paul saying? He's saying Christianity then must have a unique and specific type of love that differentiates us from unbelievers. Look at what type of love is rooted to the design of God, okay? And let's use one example. And I want to use the most intimate relationship in your life to say how it differentiates from unbelievers. Marriage. Unbelievers get married. Unbelievers marry and do experience a type of love in their marriages and in their families. That's why Ephesians chapter 5 is so gospel shaping. Look at verse 31. Therefore, he quotes Genesis from the beginning. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. There it is. The love of Christ controls your marriage. 
He's saying the difference between the way a believer gets married and the way an unbeliever gets married is that a believer understands that your marriage relationship is supposed to reflect the work that Jesus Christ did for the sake of his people, the church. A new commandment I bring to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Ephesians 5 is explaining how that fits the most intimate relationship that you should ever have in your life. The relationship between a husband and a wife And that is the relationship that you are the most tempted to make all about you. I see people all the time leave their marriage because they weren't making much of me. He can take that too far. But remember, what's the glad assumption here? The glad assumption is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul writes this section as though there was an obvious question as to why God designed the relationship of marriage the way he did. And everybody in their first year of marriage says, yeah, it is a weird relationship and I'm blowing it. (laughs) I've never seen people more unhappy than their first year of marriage. It's as if you never met a girl before. (laughs) It's like, I thought I knew her. Then I woke up the next morning and I was like, who is this? Now, I can only give you the male perspective. <laughs> Don't ask my wife for the female perspective. Right? Uh, I broadcast wide and far. My first year of marriage, I, I was not good. <laughs> Nobody is. But you love other people the way that Christ loves his church, and that's a sacrificial type of love. And then Paul lays out that the gospel of Jesus gives definition to what God has designed marriage to be all about. And it's the same ethic as the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ must control the husband and wife in such a way that their love for one another takes that relationship to a type of love that intersects with discipleship so that Through the marriage relationship, both the husband and the wife will grow in their faith to be more faithful to Jesus than they would without one another. Like I said, that is the most intimate or should be the most intimate relationship in your life. And God says that it exists for the purpose that he has designed and he showcased through Jesus Christ. All other relationships, I need you to understand you will experience a lesser version of what you experience in marriage. But even those relationships exist for the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the introduction. <laughs> Look in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. He furthers it. Remember, he's basing this on the way you view yourself And the way you view other people. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so we begin, because that's a famous verse. But contextually speaking, he's pointing it to the way you view other people and the way you view yourself and a third, the way you view Jesus Christ. It's saying in light of that, 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Relationships will never be the same. Verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The love of Christ controls us. I don't view myself the same. I don't view other people the same. I don't view Jesus the same. I'm not the same. I've been completely changed. Old Steve gone. New Steve has come through the power of God in the gospel. Therefore, now God has entrusted me with a ministry in which I seek to help other people reconcile to Jesus Christ in their lives. That's what relationships are all about. And there isn't anything else for Christian. Number two this morning, without mission, community fails. Without mission, community fails. There's two types of people in here. There's those of you that crave community, and there's those of you that it is the biggest burden in your life. Those are the two types of people that are in here, and I don't think there's really much in between. But you need to understand that community is an ideal. Building relationships in your life is an ideal. But even if you build the ideal of community... There's a great temptation and everyone's default mode is to build it wrong and to build it sinful. And then it ends up being built about myself. That's the biggest struggle with helping others build community is on helping them understand community is not the end goal. I mean, some of you have gotten into a church and it's just like community, community, community. Biblical community, biblical community, biblical community, biblical community. Are you in biblical community? Do you want to be in community? You've got to be in community. Come be in community. Sit in community. Stay in community. We're all about community. It's the community. It's for the good of the community. We don't want to do it for the bad of the community. We've got to build the community. It's all about community. And then after a while, you're like, so we're just in community. Okay. And that's the end. And do you want to know what happens when community is the end? Have you ever drank water from a stagnant pond? When community is the ends, then all of the ick, all of the yuck, all of the gross, all of the sewage just flows into it and it never goes away, never goes anywhere, never gets dealt with. And it stagnates, and I will tell you, in the end, it always goes bad because it's unhealthy. Because without mission, community fails. Community was not meant to be a stagnant pond. Community was meant to be a flowing river. It was meant to be something that is so life-giving that it never stops. It keeps moving. And it's never about me. It's always about others. Therefore, when we begin to be stagnant, when you're about the mission of Jesus, when you're about being a messenger of reconciliation in other people's lives, you will, and I need you to understand this, you will realize, well, we've all been reconciled. We're all Christians. Well, we got to go get more. We got to go love more. We got to go help more. If you build, this is why our community groups are, are the way that they are, and we're just very gracious with some. And so we'll let them get scummy, pondy, 
for a minute, and then I throw a chlorine tab in there, and I got to shock you, because we got to clean it up. Some of you want five people in your life forever, and your goal is to find biblical community with two, three, four other married couples, and then you're just going to be all about each other for a couple of years, and then either infidelity or just selfishness and backbiting is going to ruin that community. And you want to know why? Because you were not a flowing river. You were a stagnant pond. And sinful human beings cannot handle something of God's design when you try to change it for yourself. Without mission, community fails. The Bible is clear that you were not meant to do life alone, but the Bible is also clear that you were meant to take the good news of Jesus Christ to unbelievers and build your community and multiply your community. That's why I love moving communities around. When I see a, a community group get to 15 or 20 people, I start asking the question, how can we launch a new one with half of them? Because the longer you stay the same, the sicker you're going to get because you were meant to grow. Week one, change. Change. The very thing some of you are fighting is the very thing that God wants to use in your life to bring about the best repentance you've ever experienced, the best revival you've ever experienced, and the life that God has designed for you to grow in your discipleship. That is why the mission of our community groups is to bring discipleship into your life so you can take discipleship into the lives of others. People come to this church, and I love it. You immediately begin building relationships with other people. That is wonderful. That's by design. But my job, in part, is to goad those relationships to always be focused on the goal of discipleship. Because the shepherd has to keep you from hurting yourself. And I'm not trying to get you to multiply because I don't want you to have friends. Friends is great. I'm trying to get you to multiply so that you can love others and love Jesus Christ. Because we are prone to selfishness. I do not believe that focusing on the same people for years and years and years is the goal because I don't think that's the soil that the gospel cultivates. For some of you, yes, your greatest goal is to find community. But my job is to make sure that that goal is biblical. And it's not self-seeking. Because again, I got to help you be controlled by the love of Christ. And here's the deal. I'm not saying this is easy. This is the hardest thing you'll ever do. Relating to other people is the hardest thing any of you will ever do. And I promise you, if you're married, your marriage has proven that true. That's even the ultimate agenda that the gospel gives us, but many churches will just tell you, settle into a community, be the same for years, and that's why churches will shrink. If community terminates on itself, it creates an idolatry problem, and it cultivates an atmosphere where sinful selfishness and sinful arrogance will reign supreme. Verses 17 through 19 there presents to us the radical change of what being changed by the power of the gospel actually 
looks like in our lives. It gives us a mission to see as many people as possible reconciled to Christ. Why? Because I don't view other people the same way. Now I view other people through the lens of Jesus Christ. And the lens of Jesus Christ dictates the way I view other people is that they need gospel change. And I got to help them get gospel change. That's discipleship. Do the relationships in your life present a clear picture, according to Scripture, of what discipleship looks like? And I'm not just asking about a few of the relationships in your life. I'm asking you about all of the relationships in your life. All of them. Every single one of them. The weakest one to the strongest one. Do they show active discipleship? That is why our community our community groups even, our discipleship groups must have a clear vision for discipleship that leads to multiplication. That mission cultivates a vibrant, growing community that moves to make room for more people to come to faith in Christ for more people to get assimilated into the community, and for more people to get multiplied into more disciples. For that to happen, community cannot be about you. It will always be about other people. Biblical community, then, is a catalyst for gospel multiplication. And some of you will say, but once you cultivate these great friendships, it is terrifying to try to build new ones. Welcome to gospel living. Everything about it is terrifying. (laughs) But you have to sacrifice in order to grow. You have to. You have to. And here's the thing. If all of you have a vision for gospel multiplication, you will not lose those relationships. Many people don't know that I've known the people that I started this church with for 20 years. 20 years. And let me tell you what would have been totally comfortable. Totally easy. We just hung out together forever for the rest of our lives. Never made it about anybody else. Never added anybody else to our community group. What if I told you none of us are in the same community group anymore? What if I told you our relationships are stronger than they've ever been before? We love each other more than we've ever loved each other before. We're more loyal to each other than we've ever been before. We're more committed to each other than we've ever been before. And I'll tell you why. And it's not us. It's the grace of God that this happened because we refused to let our relationships become a pond. And we asked the question, what if God could use our friendship with one another to create a moving River. That is how you go from nine people to 900 people. Because we determined it is not going to be about us. Having friends is good, it's even godly, it's biblical. But Are you being faithful in multiplication? That's the question that has to be asked. That's the key. Friendship is this beautiful gift that God has given us. And if you are lucky, if you are lucky, you will have a few friendships that endure a lifetime. 
The problem is that some of us fill our margins with only a select group of a few people and we invest and we invest and we invest and we invest in each other and there's nothing left for multiplication. Ecclesiastes 4.12 is true. Here's what it says. It says, though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. What is he saying? He's saying have good relationships with other people in your life, but never look at that and not remind yourself that at the end of Ecclesiastes, what is his whole point for the book? Not friends are friends forever. Remember the creator in the days of your youth. In other words, those relationships have to be about what God is about. That's how they become a threefold cord that is not broken. It's life-giving, life-protecting, edifying. But when it becomes about what God is not about, it is not going to be a threefold cord. Those relationships must urge you to live for the gospel. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. The author of Hebrews says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What type of encouragement will you need? The type of encouragement that it takes to live and love and do the good works that God has given us in Christ Jesus. So a Christian community that has no margin for multiplying your faith and moving on to make disciples is a stagnant community that cannot stir you up to the good works that God has given us in Christ Jesus. It can't do it. You've got to be about multiplication. Your relationships need to converge with discipleship or they will turn toxic. It's not an if. It is a when. Number three, relationships find their deepest meaning in discipleship. They find their deepest meaning in discipleship. Look at verse 20. Therefore, since all of this is true, we have a message of reconciliation We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. Mission trumps community every time. Verse 20 uses the picture of being an ambassador. Do you know what an ambassador is? It means that you are an outpost of a foreign kingdom. And it means that anywhere your feet tread, it's a word picture that everywhere you go is an outpost for the kingdom that you serve. And so everywhere the follower of Jesus Christ treads is an outpost for the kingdom of heaven. You live to represent the kingdom of heaven. There's an agenda that every relationship you form has the agenda of the kingdom of heaven. I've heard it said, don't enter relationships with an agenda. Well, then you will never have a purpose in your relationships beyond yourself. Every relationship must have a gospel agenda or it is not an outpost for the kingdom of heaven. You don't represent you. You represent the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, steward your relationships with that vision. If we are not careful, our relationships with others can become a barrier to discipleship rather than a catalyst for discipleship. We must intentionally take stock of how we are relating to others and ask, is the way that I'm relating to others showing that the love of Christ controls me? That is a moral question of, yes, 
how you are treating people, but it is also a moral question of the mission that Jesus has given you. It's the question of, am I a catalyst for multiplying discipleship into the lives of others, or am I so self-seeking that I have actually become an obstacle to discipleship for other people? Focus on what you should be doing, and the other stuff that you're afraid of will take care about itself. This is about obedience to God. He has made it clear in Scripture. If you seek first His kingdom, all these other things will be added to do to you, rather. In other words, you will form lifelong relationships if you seek to be a multiplying disciple maker. And as you seek to multiply your faith in others on a continual basis, you will form friendships that last a lifetime. That's been my experience. Balance, though, and how that works out is only ever going to be found in you just simply saying, I'm going to obey God and let him take care of what I'm worried about. You have the time for this. You have the margin for this. Jesus challenged us relationally at the most important relationships that we have I mean, look at what Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 says. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. What in the world? My mom and dad? Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Do you have children? I do. That's unthinkable. I'm not capable of more love than the love I have for my three kids. Or am I? I see people sacrifice their faith for their kids and then pretend, well, I got to. Did you listen to Jesus? He said, whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There's no harder saying in scripture that I've found. Verse 38, and whoever does not take his cross, he knew how hard it would be. He knew how hard that command is. Is this going to be like dying? Note, he said this before he went to the cross. There's a lot of things you're not capable of until you consider the cross. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Not because he wants you to neglect those relationships. Not because he's like, well, I'm a Christian now. Mom, dad, I can never speak to you again. <laughs> I'm out. No. Not because he wants you to ne neglect the relationship. The scripture also says, honor your father and mother in the Lord. The scripture also says to love your children. He doesn't want us to neglect those relationships, but because of our sin, relationships can become a barrier to the mission God wants you to live when they become more important than the mission of Jesus. What Jesus is saying is his mission over everything. It's got to be the most important thing to you. We must love like Jesus and multiply like disciples. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul gives his vision for his life. He says, if I preach the gospel, it gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid on me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. You know, he's, you know what the word woe means? He's saying, damn me if I do not preach the gospel. 
That's how imperative it was. He said, I will face condemnation if I don't preach the gospel. It was unthinkable to Paul to be driven by anything other than the mission of Jesus. And so I ask you, look at your relationships. What are you driven by in those relationships? Verse 21 finishes 2 Corinthians 5 with a gospel declaration. But here's how you apply those gospel declarations. What the Apostle Paul is doing, because if you look, every time Paul gives an implication, in other words, a command in light of the gospel, he usually prefaces it with a gospel declaration and then finishes it with a gospel declaration. He bookends it. Why is that necessary? First, because he doesn't want you to think you're earning anything through your obedience, but not here. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think what's happening here is that he's applying all of the gospel into the relationships, and he assumes the natural response is, I am incapable of that. I can't do that. That vision is too great for me. That's too big of a command. I can't be completely selfless. I can't love others like Jesus. I can't be a physical representation, an ambassador for Christ. I can't. And then he looks at you and he said, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that you might become the righteousness of Christ. What he's saying is, if you couldn't do it, God wouldn't call you towards it. Because of Jesus, you have the responsibility, you have the privilege, and you have the potential to obey every call that he gives you. A few application points this morning. First, learn to view others the way Jesus does. You have to learn that. You have to. I've been following Jesus a long time, and I'm still learning it. It's hard. Secondly, repent of your ingrained self-centeredness. You might think you're not. You are. Even the response, I'm not, is a self-centered response. <laughs> because it's a response of, I'm not taking inventory. I'm not looking down deep in my soul for the dark parts. Thirdly, reassess your relationships for discipleship. All of them. Every single one of us, in light of the gospel, needs to frequently take a look at all of the relationships in our, in, in our lives and say, how does this relationship show that the love of Christ controls me? Or how is it showing that the love of Christ does not control me? And then finally, live as an ambassador for Christ. I represent Jesus Christ to my wife. I represent Jesus Christ to my children. I represent Jesus Christ to my coworkers. I represent Jesus Christ to my neighbors. I represent Jesus Christ to my parents. I represent Jesus Christ to people that I don't like. I represent Jesus Christ to those of you that annoy me. I represent Jesus Christ to everyone in my life. And so do you. So do you. Live his mission in your relationships.